0: Our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. This is the word of God for us this morning. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege of singing true things, for the privilege of hearing your word. Thank you for even giving us a prayer to sing. And we ask, God, that you would indeed speak in your word to us, to grow us, to change us, to make us into that which you want us to be. Father, be magnified this morning and breathe spiritual life into your people and into your church. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Last week we saw the biblical command for Christians to love one another. Because we have believed in Jesus, because we've been given purity from Jesus, we are supposed to love one another. And that love is both a commitment to one another's good and that love is a sincere affection for one another. And my hope is that you would, after hearing that message last week, sincerely take some time to think about and pray about how do I better love my brothers and sisters in Christ right here in this church? Did you do that? Did you talk about that? Did you think about that this last week? I really hope it challenged us. But this week we want to go further in the topic of Christian love. See, last week we just scratched the surface by barely touching one verse of what Peter wanted to tell us. And this week, we're going to go further by seeing a reason why we should love one another and why it's important. We'll see a set of things that loving one another demands we remove from our lives. And we'll see the most important thing of all to help us love one another. So if you're a note taker, get ready for three main points as we sort of go into part two of a message we would call Love One Another. So if you're ready, point number one, love one another because of the worth of the word of God. Love one another because of the worth of the word of God. Look with me at the end of first Peter chapter one, having purified your soul is the good news that was preached to you. Remember again, the command we're studying, love one another, love sincerely, love from a pure heart, love in a way that stretches you. But love one another is what God has commanded us. And so if you are a Christian, if you believe the Bible is the word of God, you've got to hear this and know that God is commanding you right here, right now, this church, develop a genuine powerful Christian love for other Christians here in the body. You are to love one another. Verse 22, we saw one reason to love one another already, and that is that we were saved for a sincere brotherly love. That's what verse 22 tells us. We were saved, and the purpose of our salvation is that we love one another. So now let's go further, though. Let's see another reason, and I would suggest that the reason we see that God gives us here is not the first reason you would guess as to why Christian love is important. Verse 23 says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Just like verse 22, verse 23 ties our call to love one another back to our salvation. And this time, it reminds us that, that, yeah, those who know Jesus are born again. Back at the beginning of the chapter, Peter told us that those of us uh, who are saved were caused by God to be born again. And it looked like Peter there was emphasizing the sovereignty of God in, in our salvation. But now we see that being born again is also supposed to result in our loving one another. But this time, the focus on our new birth is a comparison. People who are physically born... How many of you have been physically born? Good, I'm just making... I'm glad you're with me here. If you are physically born, you are born of human seed. Human cells, physical cells, came together to bring you to life, right? Those who are born again... How many of you are born again? Don't, don't answer that at all. If you're spiritually born, spiritually made alive, you have been born of a different seed. In verses 18 and 19, Peter said, We were ransomed by something far greater than silver or gold, right? Nothing cheap like gold. You were ransomed by the blood of Jesus if you're saved. Here We are conceived as children of God, not with something earthly like natural seed, but with something far more valuable. So what is it that God used to bring us to life? Because it must be incredibly valuable. Because God is using its value as an argument for why you and I are to strain to love one another earnestly. And the thing God used to bring us to life is the living and abiding Word of God. Follow the argument if I lost you. You and I are supposed to love one another. You with me on that? Okay. Why are we to love one another? We are to love one another because we were born again, brought to spiritual life, through something that is really valuable. What is it? It's the value, the worth of the Word of God, the Word that brought us to life. And that value of that Word obligates us to have a genuine spiritual love for one another. How valuable, just ask this question, how valuable is the Word of God? Verses 24 and 25, Peter says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now Peter there is quoting for us Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. And there the prophet Isaiah compares the lives of people up against the eternality, the foreverness, of God. And he says our lives they are like grass in a field in the middle of a blazing summer. People rise and fall. Our lives are short. Our time on earth is brief. But God and God's holy word stands forever. I mean we pop up and wilt like desert flowers. You guys know about those, right? How long does a flower last here? No. But God and God's perfect word remains forever, unchanged, never shaken. And Peter goes on to tell us that it's this word, this unchanging word that was preached to us to bring us life. Now the troubling thing is, because I know you guys, I know you Christian people, because I'm one of us Christian people. We can hear this. And we can nod and we can agree, yep, that's true. But somehow we don't let that light a fire of joy in our hearts. Stop and listen. Stop right now and pray that God would speak to your heart here, plead with the Lord to show you here the significance his word and that he spoke to us because it ought to blow you up that God would care enough to speak to you. God did not have to speak. God did not have to reveal himself. God could have chosen to remain silent and God would have been perfectly righteous to judge you for your disobedience to his ways. You understand that, right? God could have sent me to hell forever and never told me why, and God would have been perfect to do so. How valuable is the word of God? See, that's not how God works. God speaks. God is a speaking God. In the beginning, God used his word, his speaking, to create the universe out of nothing. A word from God hurled blazing stars into space. A word from God spins planets out of nothing, forms seas, forms animals, raises mountains, digs valleys. God's word stretches the galaxies further than you and I could ever imagine. God's words. God's word, forms Mount Everest at 29,029 feet tall and it digs out the Marianas Trench at 35,000 plus feet below sea level. How valuable is the word of that God? It's that same speaking God who commanded that people live in his image. It's that same God who, after the fall of man, made a promise that he was going to send a Savior into the world. God told us somebody was going to come into the world who would take a wound to himself while totally defeating the devil forever. How valuable is the word of that God? It's the speaking God who told the people of Israel how to worship him. He told them, here's what you sacrifice if you want to please me and have me not kill you. Again, and I've done this before with you, have you ever thought what it would have been like if God had said, figure it out on your own? What would you have tried to sacrifice to please God? And what would have happened had you been wrong? What should we try today? Oh, there's a pig over there. (coughs) All right, somebody else. We would have died and been right to, but God was kind to speak. God told the people what sins to avoid. God told the people what to do in order to build a tabernacle properly for his worship. How valuable are the words of that God? And the same speaking God shows us in His Word that Israel is not the end of His plan, but the vehicle through which God would bring the Savior into the world. Israel proof for you and me to see that we never obey even the simplest commands of God perfectly. Is that not true of you and me? Israel proved how desperately we need a Savior to rescue us. And God said the Savior was going to come. God even said the Savior would come and he would die. And God said the Savior would come and he would die, but somehow he would rule forever. And even when it didn't make sense, God in the Old Testament promises and promises and promises that his word is going to come true and that his will is going to be done. How valuable is the word of that God? And after Jesus came, after Jesus showed us that he is the Savior, after Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave, God let us know that people from all nations are going to be saved when they turn away from their sins and they believe in Jesus. And God revealed himself to us in Jesus, who God called the Word of God. And God let us know that all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, are given the right to be called children of God. How valuable is the Word of God. And Paul told us that if anybody's going to be saved, anybody at all, they have to be saved by believing in Jesus. They've got to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. But Paul added right after that that, People cannot believe in someone of whom they've never heard. They've got to have somebody speak words to them, God's words to them, so they can know the Lord Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus, repent and find forgiveness of their sins in the Lord Jesus. How valuable is the word of that God? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul told Timothy that the Word of God, the Scriptures, are able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Paul said the Scriptures, the Word of God, are inspired and profitable to make you and me into what God wants us to be. How valuable is the Word of God? Now stop and really think. Had God not spoken? you and I would go to hell justly because we're sinners. Because God has spoken and revealed to us himself and his ways in his word, we can know that there's grace available to us in Jesus Christ. The word of God is our lifeline. Without the word of God, we'd be dead. But with the Word of God, with what God did, with what God chose to reveal, we get life in Jesus Christ. And how stunning is it, friends, to think that the thing that brings you and me to salvation, that lifeline, the promise of God and the Word of God, that's been part of human history forever. Have you ever thought about the thing that saved you as the very thing God spoke about and promised in the garden? Are you all history people? Do, do you get amazed when you're in the presence of history? Like I'm, I'm talking like, like, whoa, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Back, back in Illinois where I grew up, people love to go visit places where Abraham Lincoln used to live. They love it. Why? Why do they do it? If you can see something Lincoln held or wrote on or touched, right? it's like, man, I'm right here, a part of something bigger than myself, something historic. That makes sense, doesn't it? Last October, I was in Louisville at a conference, and I was able to hold in my own two hands a copy, one of like three remaining in the world, of the Tyndale Bible from 1526. That was cool, folks. I mean, I was holding a significant piece of history in my hands. There were like 200 of them printed from this run, and I got to touch one. If you don't know, the Tyndale was the, the first Bible printed in English that was translated from the original languages. The Tyndale Bible changed the English-speaking world. I got to hold one. It was so cool. Last year, last year, thousands upon thousands of Christians went to Wittenberg, Germany. Why? They wanted to be in the place where 500 years before that, Martin Luther challenged the church to reform. Why did they go there? Because it made them feel part of something bigger. Right? Do you all get those kind of feelings? Do you get the goosey bumpies there from all that? How much more significant is it then to realize that the word of the God who created with a word is the same word that brought you the gospel how much more significant is it to realize the promise of salvation we have received is the same salvation that God spoke with his own mouth in the garden of Eden how much more significant is it to realize that the message promised by the prophets and preached by the apostles and preserved in the word of God, that message is the one we have responded to to gain eternal life. Friends, God wants you to be overwhelmed with the value of the scriptures. The word of God is a treasure of infinite worth and it's that Treasure that seeded your salvation. And it's that treasure that seeded my salvation. And it's that treasure that seeded the salvation of every saved person in this room. And so you and I should have Christian love for each other because we were saved. We were brought to being born again, seeded by the infinitely valuable word of God. You cannot look at another Christian in this room and devalue them without devaluing God and God's holy word. I really don't think you heard that significantly enough. You cannot look at any Christian in this room and devalue them without also devaluing the infinitely valuable holy word of God that God used to save them like he saved you. God, in the work of Christ through the Word of God, saved every one of these fellow believers who are saved. And if you love God and if you love God's Word, you must love other Christians too. And that's why I say to you that we are to love one another because of the worth of the Word of God. With me? Point number two Love one another by putting away evil. Love one another by putting away evil. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What's the first word of that verse? So. That's important. That tells tells us Peter is carrying through on his thought, right? Right? Because we've been saved through the infinitely valuable word of God, there is a response that you and I should make. This is in the light of the command that you and I love one another. And so we're not going to pause for anything so trivial as a chapter break. You remember that the breaks on the chapters in the Bible, chapter 1, chapter 2, they were not in the original text of these books. They were added into the Latin Vulgate by Stephen Langton, Arch- Archbishop of Canterbury, for the sake of convenience in the early 1200s. Did you know that? Can you get that it took more than 1,200 or like 1,100 years for someone to think maybe chapters would help? <laughs> we are not the smartest race in the world, y'all. <laughs> but because God saved us, God purposes that we love one another. Because we were brought to life by the infinitely valuable word of God, we are to be sure to keep certain things out of our lives. And that's why we see put away there. And, and that word is a word that can be used for taking off dirty, nasty, filthy clothes. Paul uses it in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8 when he uses, gives us a very similar list of sins that we're supposed to take off as we instead put on the love of Christ. Now Peter lists for us a set of five sins here, five things that hinder truly loving one another and God commands us that we are supposed to love one another. We've got to be sure that we're battling against all five of these things as we live our lives in the church. These things cannot be a part of your life. They cannot be a part of your character. They cannot be a part of how we treat one another. So let's look at them really quickly. The first thing we've got to take off is all malice. And the Greek word there, kakia, is a word that means wickedness evil depravity it's a kind of evil that would be willing to break the law of god and hurt other people there is no place in the christian family for any one of us to be to be holding on to or exercising the desire to do each other harm that's got to go away if you love jesus you cannot desire to hurt his bride If you love God, you must not embrace desires to do evil things to the people of God. Now, you and I all know that kind of thing would never happen in the church, right? You seem less than convinced. If you think that this never happens, you haven't lived very long in the real world. It's sad, but it's true. Because you know what? When we offend each other, sometimes we come back at each other with the desire to hurt and get revenge. Be honest. Can you tell me you've lived your whole Christian life without ever wanting to smack somebody? Or better yet, most of us don't want to smack somebody. How many times have you been in a conversation with another Christian where you go through and you think to yourself, man, if I had said this to them, I could have just laid them out with my words. I would have shown them. I would have gotten the best of that exchange. you going to tell me you've never done that? We, want, we like to hurt people because we like to win. Sometimes we have things in life or in the church that we want and we feel like other Christians are blocking us from the thing that we want to have. And if we're not careful, we will become a people who are willing to hurt each other to get what we desire. God says it is evil, it is malice, and we have to put it away. Second is all deceit. And the word behind deceit there is a word... uh, Any of you guys like to fish? Any fishermen in the room? A couple of you? Yeah? Okay. The word, the Greek word there for deceit is a word that actually ties to the world of catching a fish... By baiting a hook, because now again this doesn't mean fishing's wrong. Don't, don't I'm not going there. But the idea is, someone doing this in life is presenting a lie, a falsehood in front of somebody as if it's something true, in order to try to gain advantage over them, and that cannot be part of Christianity. Hypocrisy is third on the list, and we all know what hypocrisy is, right? It's putting forward a false face. A hypocrite pretends to be something he or she is not, and that is inconsistent with the genuine love that we're called to in Christ. Fourth is envy. You envy somebody else, that means you are hostile toward them because of something they have. It may be that you're hostile to somebody because you feel like they have a privilege that you don't have. It may be that you're you're jealous of their, their wealth. It may be that you're jealous of their extreme good looks. It may be that you're jealous of how other people see them. You're sick of the way that everybody thinks that person's so great. Right? You do that. We do that. And anything like that can stir in us jealousy toward others. But we cannot let those things be part of who we are. Fifth on the list is slander. By the way, if I didn't get you with one of the first, good luck getting out of this one. (laughs) Slander is when you speak against somebody with the intent to do them harm. Most of the time you would say slander is lying about somebody to bring them down in the eyes of others. But it's not limited to that. We can say true things about someone, but is a way that we're trying to cause hardship or pain. Can you tell me that since you've become a Christian, you have never spoken about another Christian to somebody else in a way that is supposed to make them look down on that person? you going to say, I've never done that. Well, first of all, God bless you or look out for lightning because I'm telling you, this is we're guilty of this, aren't we? Using our words like that, true words or false, dishonor God and damage the fellowship in the body of Christ. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that if there is a Christian or someone claiming to be a Christian but who is teaching false doctrine and being dangerous, yeah, we call that out. But you guys, I mean, you're grown ups, you know the difference in I'm trying to protect the body from someone who is a wolf in sheep's clothing versus I'm just trying to put them down so I look good. You know. Now the only right thing for you and me to do after seeing a list like this is to check ourselves and see if the things that are listed are the things that we have taken out of our Christian life, supposed to put it away. So do you do any of these five things? Are you willing to hurt others if they hurt you? Are you willing to harm somebody to get your way? Are you willing to lie to somebody else so that you look better? Do you pretend to be somebody or something that you're not? Do you see the successes of others and feel bitterness toward what they've received? Do you desire to take from others the position or the respect that they've gained? Do you speak about others in the church in such a way as to try to make people think less of them? Be honest. Let the Lord show you here where have you failed to put off sins that do harm to the body. And as you see these things in yourself, fight! Turn to the Lord in repentance. Confess to God your sin. Ask God to help you hate your sin. And realize that all of these sins, these are the ways that we act when we do not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the cure is not just to put off the wrong, but to sincerely seek to love one another. Ask God, God, help me value other Christians. God, help me to see others as people Jesus tied to save. God, soften my heart so I will love people the way you want me to love people. God, soften my heart so that when somebody's different than me, I don't assume that means I'm good and they're bad. Love one another by putting away evil. But how do we do this? You've got to be thinking right now, there's got to be something more helpful than for you just to tell me to stop being a nasty person. There's got to be a better way, right? Wouldn't you think that there's something better than me just telling you to stop it? Cut that out. Point number three, love one another out of hunger for God. Love one another out of hunger for God. Verses two and three of chapter two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now often in the Bible when a negative command is given, don't do that command, we get, following it, an alternative command, a do this instead. By the way, that is how you repent. When you take off a don't do that and put on a do this instead, that is when repentance gets wrapped up. Well, in this instance, at first glance, you might say, man, this is almost like a subject change, but I really don't think so. Peter reminded us in verse 22 of chapter 1, we have been safe for sincere love. 23 to 25 of chapter 1, Peter points to the word of God as our source, our seed of salvation. We share this with one another and it's supposed to help us love one another. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter says, put off these five sins that would keep us from loving one another. And here, I really think Peter's taking us right back to the beginning, right back to where we started and pointing to love of God and love of God's word that helps helps us love each other like we, as we love our Lord together. So let's get this. Now first, don't get lost in the metaphor. Peter says we're supposed to hunger for God like infants hunger for milk. How many of you have ever been around a little one that was hungry? I, I mean baby. You ever been around a baby that's hungry? How many of you can sleep through that? You get it, right? Listen, they let you know. Sometimes they let you know at great volume, at late hours, but they let you know that they want their food and they want it now. And they won't take no for an answer. I mean, even now, I can look at Owen and he can say, Dad, I'm hungry, and i say, Okay, let me finish this and I'll come help you. And I can at least get three minutes out of that. (laughs) But... But when it's a little one, you can't reason with them. You just can't. And Peter says, "I want you hungering for God like that." As we hunger for God, we grow up into salvation. Did you love that phrase? "Grow up into salvation." Do you know what would happen in our lives if that phrase wasn't there? You and I would think that saved equals that we're done. Guess what? None of you people's done yet. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're saved. You've got salvation. You are perfectly secure in the grace of God. If you're a Christian, it is a done deal. But at the same time, if you're a Christian, guess what else? You are being saved. God is continuing to apply to you the grace of Jesus Christ and continuing to grow you into the person that he wants out of you. Salvation is both an event and a process. And we need to understand both things. When your heart is spiritually dead and you're lost before God, God first has to make your heart alive so that you can even know that you need him. And when God brings a dead heart to life, We call that regeneration, regeneration. Then once your dead heart is made alive by God, you, because God has given you grace, can turn to Jesus and confess your sin and believe in Jesus and ask for salvation and surrender to Jesus. And at that moment, God legally forgives you of your sins. That is called justification. And from that point forward, from the day of your salvation, the day of your justification, all the way through until the day you die or Jesus returns, you grow toward God. And I'll let you in on a secret. Some days are better than others. By the way, if some days are better than others, why would you not think some weeks are better than others? And if some weeks are better than others, why wouldn't you not think that some... Months are better than others. And if some months are better than others, why would you not think that some years are better than others? Man, sometimes your heart feels alive. Sometimes you feel far from God. But progressively, year by year, decade by decade, you grow in your faith. And that's called sanctification. Sanctification does not save you, but sanctification is part of the process of our salvation, even if salvation is a done deal before you ever start being sanctified. And yes, by the way, God says that we are sanctified immediately upon our salvation because we've been set apart to Christ, and that's a whole other doctrine. Finally, on the day we die, or on the day Jesus Christ returns, God will in a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, He'll change us, He will give us brand new bodies and He will finally, perfectly, eternally free us from sin forever. And that's called glorification. And that's the hope and the goal of our salvation. So you can see, can't you, that we really are growing up into salvation. Even if you're already totally, completely, perfectly saved. To be saved is to be justified. But to be saved includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and then glorification. And Peter says, like a hungry little baby, deeply long for the spiritual milk that will grow you up. Now, let me give you another, uh, another careful here, okay? Let me give you one more thing to be careful about. If you hear this metaphor, how many of you had your minds immediately go back to the things that Paul and the author to the Hebrews wrote, rebuking people about baby food? Remember that? First Corinthians chapter three, Hebrews chapter five, the authors rebuke Christians. They said, you know, you all should have been on solid food and you're still on milk. Right? Grow up. I do not think at all that's what Peter is doing here. I don't think it has anything to do with Hebrews and Corinthians there. It's not the same rebuke. What Peter's saying is, guys, be desperately hungry for God, like a demanding, unyielding, wake you up in the middle of the night, hungry baby. That's what God wants out of you, hunger for God. And then Peter gives us one more picture. He says, you will hunger for God if indeed you have tasted that God is good. And there Peter points to Psalm 34, verse 8. Because when we know God, we know God is good. And when we love God, we hunger for God. And when we experience something of the glory of God, we long for more of the glory of God. And we learn here that the glory of God, we see that it's seen in the holy word of God. We then will hunger for the holy word of God and make it a part of our Christian lives on a regular basis. So Peter's saying, guys, hunger for God. And, he, and yes, he wants them to hunger for to run to the word of God, to know God. There's no doubt. But this is not just a verse that says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good. Therefore do daily Bible reading and that's it." The milk that we long for like hungry little ones, is the glory of God in every aspect. So yes, it's the word of God. But 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 it's it's Even more, because it's everything that can ever occur in your Christian life to make you love God more. You're supposed to chase it with all you've got. So how do we run after God the way that a baby cries for milk? Yes, spend time in the Word of God. If you neglect Scripture, if you don't read Scripture, you are not hungering for God. Now, if you say, I'm not a good reader, I get it but your your phone will read it to you now it's there you can hear the word of god we we pray when we hunger for god if you're not praying you're not hungering for god We gather together with the family of God for worship on a Sunday morning. If you do not gather together with the people of God, you're not chasing after God. We fast and declare that God is more important than our daily food or our physical drive. We read good books that teach us about the Lord. We listen to good podcasts. We, we, we talk about the good things of God with others. If in your conversation with other people, God never comes up, you are not hungering for God. We share the gospel so that other people might better know the God we love. What does does Paul write to Philemon? I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You hunger for God when you share the gospel. We celebrate communion. We remember the body and the blood of Jesus and in a very real sense, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And so much more. And keep this all in context, right? What's Peter trying to tell us? When you hunger for God, what's it going to do to your life with other people in the family of God? The more you throw yourself into loving the Lord your God with all your heart, the more that you taste and see that the Lord is good, the more you will love other people that that God loved enough to save And the more you love God, the more you'll put off the sins that God says dishonor him. The more you love God, the more you will love others by inviting them to join you in worship and join you in prayer and join you in following Jesus. Love one another out of a hunger for God. Friends, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because all Christians are saved by the same gospel. Do so by putting off sins that hinder love. Do so by hungering for God, experiencing God, and loving like God. And dear friends, if you're here and you don't know the love of God I'm talking about, the only response that you have that you can make is to turn to Jesus, repent of your sin, repent of rebelling against God, repent of thinking you get to control your own life, Believe in Jesus and ask Him for mercy. Jesus died and came back to life and everyone who comes to Him is going to be forgiven and given new life. Come to Jesus, please, and become part of the family of God. Let's bow together and let's pray.